Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly broadcasting live from downtown Los Angeles, where the sun is finally shining after we did a damn good impersonation of Seattle. Have a great show for you. Please be seated. We're going to be covering a a very timely topic um, through the lens of history. And with us is an author, an acclaimed author. Um, His name is Stephen Kinzer. And he has written, uh, he's been a correspondent in all parts, Turkey to Latin America um, and beyond. And he has, his latest book is entitled Roosevelt Birth Empire. And it centers on the early days of the American Empire right after the Spanish-American War where there was a protracted debate about what role America should play in the world. And, um, and that debate is continuing. And if you heard Donald Trump's inaugural address, he seemed to be expressing some of the burdens of an empire state and stressed that maybe we need to have less ambitious um, focus in our plans, but at the same time, stress to wipe ISIS off the pl- face of the planet. So, Stephen, are you with us? I'm with you right here. And you are calling in from the uh, the Watson Center at Brown University? Yes, I'm sitting here on the, uh, at least metaphorically, ivy-covered halls of Brown University looking out over the campus as my students make their way from class to class. And um, so uh, thank you for joining us. And it's been we've met before, and so it's great to have you once again. Um, when you watch Donald Trump's inaugural address, and you know, talking about how you know we spend millions defending liberty abroad, but um, we haven't re- reaped the benefits at home. Um, well, clearly, you had to be thinking this seems to be uh, America is finally coming to terms with the cost of empire. I'm not sure we finally are. I do think that uh, there is a sort of a dual impulse in the American soul. On the one hand, 
we think we know what's best for the world. Uh, we feel that we have a right to resources and markets, so we want to go out and help. We want to be humanitarians. Uh, we want to serve ourselves and the world. So we want to go out into the world and make things right everywhere because when we're not there, there's chaos. And when we intervene, peace and freedom emerges. Uh, then the other side of our soul tells us we want to leave countries alone. We want to... We, fought our war of independence to be free of foreign domination, why should we try to dominate other countries? Those interventions right. are hugely expensive and create more enemies for ourselves. So these are two opposite views. You can't hold both of them, but we do. I think Americans really have never resolved this question. Uh, do we want to go out into the world and redeem it and make it better, make it like us, or... Do we uh, serve our interests better by creating a virtuous society at home and hoping that can be an example for others? That's the debate that started in 1898, the period that my book is about, and it has never been resolved. It's very, very true. And what's, what's interesting, when I was you know, going through researching you know, this period, it, you know when people do the alphabet, um, a, it's A, B, C, D, and you come to elemental P. You know, you, you say it fast. You know, it seems that in American history, we have the, you know, the, civil, the, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and then there's a you know, bunch of things that happen, uh, and then it's World War I, World War II, Vietnam, and, you know, obviously the, 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 the current wars. You know, so it seems like this whole era of, you know, from even the Mexican War and the um, you know, the Manifest Destiny period and this period, the Spanish-American War, kind of becomes like an elemental P. All of my books are looking for untold stories. I'm looking for historical events that were very important, but that for one reason or another got dropped out of the history books. And right. my great discovery in writing this book, The True Flag, was that uh, it was not that we became an imperial nation and we started taking Spanish colonies in 1898 and 1899. I knew that. I knew the history. I knew that was the moment when the United States decided we're not going to be satisfied inside North America. We're going to push out into the world. But what I had not realized and what I think has been lost to history is that the entire United States was caught up in a huge debate over whether to do this. This was not something we did automatically. There was tremendous resistance to it. All of the major intellectual and political figures in the United States took sides in this debate. The U.S. Senate convened to debate it, and the debate lasted 32 days over the treaty that, uh, by which we took those uh, Spanish islands. So uh, I discovered in the course of my research that this anti-imperial feeling that many of us have today, this sense that the United States is overreaching and is only creating problems for ourselves by intervening in other countries, is not a new idea. This argument goes back over a hundred years, and the debate on which I focus in my book, the beginning of this argument in 1899 over whether we should become a colonial power or mind our own business, um, is the true mother of all debates in the history of American foreign policy. Our foreign policy is essentially all boils down to one question, is intervention. It's that one word. When do we intervene? Where? How? Right. Why? And that is the question we started debating in 1899, and we're still debating. And what's interesting at that period um, is, is going on, to for, for put it in context for the readers, is they had just defeated Spain, 
and in the Spanish-American War, which was triggered by um, a remember the main, you know, the, the explosion in the main led to us um, and the famous the declaration from Randolph Hearst, you know, send me the pictures, I'll give you the war. And so we had this brief um, war with Spain that left us with the possibility of having territories from Asia, um, the Philippines, Guam, as well as um, Puerto Rico, and possibly Cuba. And so that debated and one thing that was interesting was the whole notion er, uh, Andrew Carnegie actually offered part of the treaty was that we would pay twenty million to get the Philippines, and Carnegie said, "It's really a remarkable story uh, how this anti-imperialist league emerged. That was an institution I wasn't even aware of when I started writing this book. So, the anti-imperialist league emerged in 1898 and was a major force in American public life for several years thereafter." Um, the uh, gamut of American public figures who signed up as leaders of the Anti-Imperialist League is truly impressive. So, as you mentioned, Andrew Carnegie was the richest plutocrat in America. He was also a bitter, bitter anti-imperialist. He was making speeches and writing articles asking, how can we hang the Declaration of Independence in the classrooms of the Philippines after we take it over and suppress their will for independence. And as you said, he offered to buy the Philippines back from the U.S. Treasury so that he could set the Philippines free. But in addition to having the richest man in America uh, on the anti-imperialist side, you also had many of the greatest social reformers of that period, like Jane Addams, who was the, went on to win the Nobel Prize for her settlement work in Chicago, Booker T. Washington, the leading uh, African-American figure of that era, Samuel Gompers, the most important labor leader of that era. And then in addition, you get these tremendous uh, cultural figures like William James and particularly Mark Twain. That was the uh, second big discovery of my book after the discovery that this debate actually happened, which is a huge discovery for me. I also discovered a new Mark Twain. Um, I had always had this image that we are fed of kind of a very gentle, wise-cracking old grandfather who was loved by everybody and loved everybody. But that's not true. He was a vituperative, bitter anti-imperialist. He wanted to change the U.S. flag to replace the stars with skulls and crossbones for what we were doing in the world. So uh, a very interesting array of political and cultural figures arose uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century to oppose the idea of American expansion. And they are really the spiritual fathers and mothers of all people today who are questioning American intervention abroad. But let's cover the flip side. And, and it, it kind of somewhat of it is an off offshoot of you know, Manifest Destiny, um, you have William McKinley, that now that we have the Philippines, you know, it is our duty to basically teach them to democracy and to Christianize <laughs> this, this, by the way, Catholic country. Yeah, it's a strange feeling that Americans have uh, of a, a missionary instinct. We feel like uh, we've found the key to prosperity and stability in all countries. And it's our job to go out and push it on other people. Now, during this debate, uh, President McKinley had a wonderful phrase to explain his perspective. So why was it correct 
for American soldiers to go to a foreign country, the Philippines, and shoot down people who honestly felt that they were defending their nation and their independence. And his explanation was this, as he said in a speech in Boston. Did we need their permission to perform this great act for humanity? We had it in every aspiration of their souls, in every hope of their hearts. In other words, they didn't even realize how much they need us. The American view, as exemplified by Henry Cabot Lodge, was that certain peoples are able to govern themselves. Others are not and need our help. And the subtext of that, of course, is that countries that are white and people that are white can govern themselves. All others need to be governed and run and guided by the United States. So some of those uh, impressions are still there. Then on the other side, you have like one famous senator from Massachusetts, George Frisbee Hoare, standing up in the Senate and saying, you have no right at the cannon's mouth to lose on another people your constitution, your declaration of independence, and your notions of freedom and what is right. So that's the argument we're still having today. And it, for me, was really a thrill to discover uh, in my research for this book that this argument has more than 100 years of pedigree. So let, let's go back to that point. I mean, you said you, you like to tell stories that, that really have and and so how was it that you stumbled on this at this point in time was did you see any particular relevance like how far back what's the genesis of this whole project i've always been interested in the process by which the united states became an imperial power so we started out uh with this belief that all legitimate government comes from the consent of the governed The Constitution begins with these words, we the people. Abraham Lincoln talked about government of the people, by the people, for the people. So how did the United States get the idea that we should go out into the world and tell other people how they should be governed and what kinds of countries they ought to have? How did that happen? Now, I think in the traditional American international relations studies, it's thought that we really made this choice after the Second World War. That's when we decided to become a global power. But I actually find that it happened earlier. I think uh, our expansion happened in essentially three phases. First, we became a continental empire, so an empire inside North America by killing the Indians, clearing out the West, conquering parts of Mexico, and we got ourselves from coast to coast. Then, in the end of the 19th century, we had a choice. Do we want to stop there now? Have we filled up the continent? Is that enough? We decided as a result of this huge debate in 1898-99 that, yes, we would expand. So that transformed us from a continental empire to an overseas empire. And then the third phase came after the Second World War when we really became a global empire. But the real decision, the choice about whether to go abroad and start shaping the fates of other countries – was made in the U.S. Senate in our debate over that treaty with, uh, with Spain in 1899. And the interesting thing, or one very interesting aspect of this debate, is that we decided to do this. We decided to become a world power by a Senate vote that was one vote more than the required two-thirds majority. And then the question was taken to the Supreme Court. Is it constitutional to govern people in other countries without giving them rights? As, as we would be guaranteed under the Constitution. 
and the Supreme Court right. declared that it was constitutional, but by one vote, five to four. So this decision that the Americans, the United States should press outside its borders and become an overseas and global power was made by very narrow margins. And although the anti-imperialists lost, we've continued to be a major force in America ever since. Now, just going back to the, um, the insular affair cases in the Supreme Court, um, one of the votes for um, the majority was also one of the people who voted for Plessy v. Ferguson, the, the infamous separate but equal case. Actually, it makes perfect sense. So the anti-imperialists thought of themselves as the successors to the abolitionists. If you believed that it was immoral to hold another person as a slave, you would, they thought, naturally believe that it was immoral to hold another country under your rule. Right. Uh, however, on the other side, you did have people who sympathized with segregation. And uh, that was the majority decision uh, in that Supreme Court case that ruled no constitutional rights for people that we rule in other countries. So that was a um, five-to-four decision. And the uh, chief justice who dissented wrote a great line, which, again, has great relevance today. This is his conclusion. The idea that this country may acquire territories anywhere upon the earth and hold them as mere colonies or provinces the people inhabiting them to enjoy only such rights as Congress chooses to accord them is wholly inconsistent with the spirit and genius, as well as with the words of the Constitution. So uh, the great uh, discovery for me in writing this book was that the debate we're involved in now really starts then, except that, of course, the people then were so much more articulate. The senators right. on both sides were so much more sophisticated during these debates. You're hearing uh, arguments over what was really the cause of the fall of Rome and what was the Catiline conspiracy and what did Pliny the Elder have to say. It's really sobering to see how uh, well-read the senators were back in those days comparing to them to the pygmies yeah. we have today. Now, it's, we've actually covered some of this in, in an earlier broadcast in, in a, a very narrow, a narrow focus. We had um, the District of Columbia um, delegate to Congress, Eleanor Holmes Norton, on on the anniversary of Congress taking over the District of Columbia and those citizens more or less becoming disenfranchised as they have been now for um, almost 200 years. And um, so there you have local people who have no say in Congress. And now you have these territories um, are you a citizen of Guam? <laughs> if you're a citizen of Guam, you're a citizen of the U.S., but without the rights of citizens yeah, of the If you're in Guam, do you, do you have U.S. citizenship? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, just recently, John Oliver did something on, you know, how we need to give the territories representation. You know, we're, we're, a lot of we're sending those people off to fight, and, are, and why, why wouldn't we give them representation? Actually, so many of the issues that we have now are blowback from colonial misadventures. Why are so many refugees flooding into Europe? Well, if those European countries had not colonized the rest of the world for centuries, those ties right. would not have happened and uh, those societies would not have been so disrupted. I think in the United States, we've come to believe that uh, no matter what we do in the world, there might be some bad effects or blowback, but it would never reach us personally. 
so we were separated by geography from the rest of the world. We never had to learn, like European countries did, how to get along with a lot of countries in your neighborhood. We don't have anyone to get along with. We just have Canadians and Mexicans and declining fish stocks. So we never had to learn the techniques of compromise and diplomacy. Now we're finding that geography doesn't protect us anymore. And in ways from refugee flows to terrorist attacks, we are seeing that our actions in the world have effects. They have blowback, and that blowback is felt actually also inside the United States. So it should be another piece of proof for us that many of our foreign interventions not only devastate the target countries, but they undermine the national security of the United States at the same time. One thing that it does not undermine the national security of the United States is us taking a short commercial break right now. You're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. We'll be right back with Steve. More of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at wmetraining.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Cranberry Radio is your new destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Get educated and entertained by our panel of on-air experts and peers. And engage with us anytime by following us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and LinkedIn. So you can reach us before and after every program. Located on our new social shareable live streaming player. Access the new Cranberry Radio live stream player at our website, cranberry.fm. Content for your ears and everything in between. Cranberry.fm The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back. This is Ben Kelly. We're talking with Stephen Kinzer. And um, he was awarded an honorary degree a few years back. And as part of the award, they have this link, quote, when there has been turmoil in the world where history has shifted, Stephen Kinzer has been there. Um, great quote there, Stephen. And kind of the, we were talking offline about may you live in interesting times. You, you certainly have. Sometimes I think that that's what's informed my view of the world. 
I wonder once in a while why I never managed to get on with the paradigm. Like, why didn't I buy into all the assumptions of American foreign policy? Why don't I believe we're the indispensable nation and the whole world is waiting for us? Why am I skeptical about the impact of American interventions abroad when so many other experts are on the other side? And in fact, Washington is a closed box. Everybody, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, every think tank mostly, and practically the whole mainstream media, is all on the monochromatic side of American exceptionalism. So why not me? And I think it might have been for the reason that you suggested, that my perspective doesn't come from Washington. So the foreign policy establishment is quite inbred. These people go to the same international relations schools, they talk to each other, they go to the same think tanks, and they have dinner together, and they get to assimilate the same view of America. But I, at that time, while they were learning all those things, was out in the world. I was in Nicaragua, and I was in Central Asia, I was in Yugoslavia. I saw the effects of American intervention uh, all over the world. So I guess I saw it from the perspective of the victims of American intervention, not from uh, the American perspective. And maybe that's the reason that I've developed this kind of uh, odd uh, view of the world that seems so out of sync with what the political establishment in Washington embraces. Now, it is, uh, you have a great quote in the book. Um, it says, Americans are often described as ignorant about the world. We are, but so are most people everywhere. The difference is that most other countries' ignorance has no real effect. America does because the United States acts on its ignorance. So continuing that point and going to the Philippines, and for listeners, um, we were after gaining the Philippines um, through the Treaty of Paris, we were engaged in a three-year war um, over their independence. And um, kind of a prelude to Vietnam. Absolutely. And, and this war was a huge uh, moment in the history of U.S.-Asia relations. Of course, maybe the, one of the biggest moments in the history of the Philippines. Uh, but we've completely forgotten it. Americans don't even oh, know entirely. that war ever happened. And I, I think I know at least part of the reason why. It's the same reason why Americans are not told that we overthrew the government of Iran and set Iran into this 70-year spiral that it's still in, or what we did in Guatemala to set off a civil war that cost 200,000 lives. Those kinds of episodes, like our war in the Philippines, do not show us like we think we are. We like to think of ourselves as good, as beneficial. And so uh, episodes of history that don't show us that way uh, tend to get forgotten or relegated to footnote status, whereas I'm always impressed with the flood, the never-ending flood of material about World War II. There are always new books, new movies, new TV shows, yeah. new video games. And, of course, was World War II hugely important? Yes. Did it shape the modern world? Yes. But I think there's another reason why we love that story so much. It's because... That shows us the way we like to think that we are going into a country, going into countries ruled by brutal tyrannies, liberating them, and then leaving democracy behind. So we tell that right. story over and over. But stories where that end uh, the opposite way are stories that we quickly forget. And part of my mission is to try to uh, recover some of those lost memories and fight against our condition as the United States of amnesia. 
<laughs> so there's a and there, there's a great quote I saw uh, about the Philippines War, which, by the way, the amount of casual deaths in the the three years in the Philippines far exceeded any anything we had done in our war with Spain. But it was the seeking independence, and the Americans were fighting to give it to them. <laughs> Well, there was one moment in the congressional debate, and, and I spent so much time going through the congressional record and going through this debate. It's fascinating. There's one moment where one senator says, which could be said right today about Syria or some other countries where there's conflict, he said, if we withdraw from the Philippines, if we don't keep soldiers there, the Filipinos will be killing each other. And another senator got up and said, I'd rather have them do that than that we go over there and kill them. Right. So if they're going to be killed, let us not be the ones that go to kill them. And I think that also makes sense. It, it's not reasonable for the U.S. to push itself into every conflict in the world thinking that we have the right answer with our 5,000-mile screwdriver to fix problems far away. And, again, this debate all goes back to the, the first one. And one, one thing I find in looking all the way through histories from Woodrow Wilson through Kennedy and up to the Central American and Middle East, uh, wars is that the arguments that are made for and against intervention all go back to this first one, except that people like Henry Cabot Lodge and Mark Twain were more articulate than their counterparts today. Although we're not, we're no longer saying we want to Christianize them. Although we are saying we want to wipe off ISIS off the face of the planet. Um, but we also do not, say not I quite think that for the Crusades, but. Oh, we're, but we're getting in that direction. I think there is a sense uh, in Washington that uh, there's something fundamentally evil about Islam, and uh, that's something that is, is scary and uh, adds a religious overtone that is not so different from our uh, missionary instinct of wanting to go out and uh, and Christianize or civilize everybody. You know, religion has always been a big reason for... Uh, foreign intervention, and it doesn't have to be just the religion of Christianity. It can be something like the religion of human rights. Uh, Americans are Correct. very compassionate people, and we hate the idea that anybody's suffering anywhere. Our leaders know this about us, and when they want to plan an intervention anywhere in the world for any reason, they always cloak it in the humanitarian guise and come up with a photograph of some poor girl who's had acid thrown in her face because she wanted to go to school, and we say, because of this, we have to go to war in such and such a country. So emotion is a very bad guide for statesmanship, and sometimes Americans uh, are over-emotional. That gets us into trouble, and later on we realize so, that we're actually creating situations <laughs> that undermine human rights when we think we're going in to protect them. So going to the it gets um, we kind of repeated our mistake in the Philippines 50 years later, 60 years later in Vietnam. And coming out of that, there was a period of some reflection by the United States, and which ultimately seemed to formulate into what are known as the Powell Rules for yes. intervention. You're absolutely and, right. So the, the uh, desire to intervene kind of swings back and forth like a pendulum. It's true that after the Vietnam War, we seemed not to want to do this anymore. Then we picked up again, and then we go down again. It really is a reflection of our divided soul. Uh, so I think... But what do you... Yeah? Granted, <laughs> as Secretary of State, you know, his commander-in-chief violated 
those those rules, but um, you know, so so much for consistency. But what do you think about as a guiding force for um, foreign policy? I like so pa- I I like this idea that Powell had, and I think to go back just to step back, it's a big question sure. in our business intervention. So what would be the criteria? We all know intervention is necessary sometimes, but oftentimes it causes trouble. So when do you intervene? And many people have come up with their different criteria. So Colin Powell came up with a nice list. He said, first of all, you only intervene when there's no option other than military force. Secondly, the people of the United States have to be in favor of the intervention. Third, there has to be a clear, recognizable threat to the United States before you get in. And finally, you have to have a clear exit strategy. So if we were to use those rules, we'd be a lot more uh, reluctant and much less promiscuous in our interventions. And, and Powell was obviously, you know, the old saying, you know, your generals always fight the last war. And Powell was talking about Vietnam. Um, in the you know, lack of public support, and also you know having a clear objective, you know a clear a clear military objective. Um, well, it's true example, that he also he looked back and then formulated these rules, and that's something you see with leaders, and you see it with presidents. They come into office very enthusiastic about using American military power around the world. And then as they're in office and they begin to see the blowback, uh, they calm down. This happened for every president from Theodore Roosevelt up to Obama. When uh, Theodore Roosevelt became president, he was the great imperialist of the age, and everybody expected him to proceed to annex all parts of the world. And we could have done that. Had he been so inclined, we might have tried to annex more of Mexico or Nicaragua, Guatemala, pieces of China, pieces of Africa. But we never did. (coughs) Theodore Roosevelt got tired of conquering nations. After a while, he realized this actually doesn't work out well. It causes lots of trouble. So uh, it's nice to see leaders maturing in office and realizing this, but you'd like to, it would be even better if they could come into office with this realization and not have to learn it each time at the cost of so much suffering around the world. Now, sticking with Powell for a minute, um, his views came from Vietnam he then goes and is part of the the, the Bush um, strategic command during the first Gulf War, um, stays on as part of the Joint Chiefs in the Clinton administration. And, and there's a famous exchange between him and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright regarding um, the crisis in Yugoslavia. And basically saying, what's the point of having this great military if we're not allowed to use it, um, kind of you know, trying to pro because of his reticence about intervention. Yeah, well, that's really the the chicken hawk view that I hate. I mean, let's, it's like saying let's you and him fight. Uh, there's this sense among these uh, liberals and conservatives in Washington, and Madeleine Albright, who said that, would qualify as a liberal, uh, that. Uh, America has to lead the world, that that leadership requires toughness, and that toughness is only really demonstrated by the threat or the use of military force. So people in the military actually tend to be more skeptical of this than some of our civilian hawks. 
it's really the view that has uh, trapped us into so many misadventures, and it's the reason why we are bogged down in so many places around the world. We can't see a crisis or a confrontation or a conflict anywhere in the world where we don't think we can play a productive role and we have to jump in. As long as we can't break out of that habit, we're going to continue on this treadmill of intervention and blowback. And um, and obviously, blowback is an important you know, term given, given your prior work in your book Overthrow, where you detailed how our intervention in Iran ultimately led to um, the rise of Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, what we did in Guatemala has led to you know, a three-decade-long or even longer civil war. Uh, and so you, because you, you've been there. I have, and I've seen that the effects of these interventions are not just theoretical. You know, they seem very uh, antiseptic when you're in Washington, like one of those grainy black and white drone videos. But when you see the so-called collateral damage that these interventions cause and you realize the hatred that that uh, foments in people, uh, you understand why America has some of the trouble it has in the world today. We forget these interventions quickly, but uh, people in the countries that are the subject of the interventions remember them, and that memory festers and burns in their hearts and souls for decades and even for generations. So it feeds into this conflict of are we really helping ourselves and the world with these interventions, or uh, do they undermine uh, the interests of both? And that, again, to me, I, I discovered in writing this book, is an argument the United States has been having with itself for 120 years. Now, there is some, the one thing that's different from then versus now is, you know, we are a world leader. Um, we were, as in 1898, we were an emerging power. And, um, and so some, there are some problems that really only American leadership can address. And, you know, a point in, you know, point in fact would be, what happened in Yugoslavia. It seemed that during the whole Clinton first term, there was a deference to, to Europe and let you know, the European problem, let them solve it. And, and they were incapable of doing so. And so finally, you know, Clinton said, okay, um, we can't allow, you know, have genocide within, uh, within Europe. And so NATO is going to step in. That and, was of course an operation that was certified not only by NATO, but by the United Nations. So the, as long as the Security Council uh, is on board with intervention, then I think it, we're in, in another area. Then you have a legal sanction. That's the only body that is allowed to do that. And if it wants to do that, that means the world is convinced of something. And that is another area. But I think um, the United States too often has this feeling that we know best whether intervention is justified or not. And we'd like to have other countries come along with us but uh, we just call it a coalition of the willing. You sign up, and uh, right. we, we make the decisions. In the modern world, the U.S. is not going to be able to behave this way. We have to have now uh, alliances and partnerships in which we really share responsibility with other countries, not the kind we're used to having, where we rule and we just tell them what to do. That worked for a long time when our power was so preponderant. But in the modern world, the United States is going to have to learn 
skills of diplomacy that uh, we have allowed to atrophy during our years of great power. Now, during the Bush years um, and W. Bush years, um, there was a big debate over the the term soft power and that basically by unilaterally acting in in Iraq and other places, we were dissipating the, the goodwill that America generally has because of its role in the world. And there, there was a perception that maybe Obama had strengthened that soft power. Um, you, do you, are you inherent to the, the, the belief of soft power? Yes, I am. I, I think for soft power can be hugely important. And I, I lament that we've pulled so far back in, in uh, trying to promote it. We now think that really our military power is all that counts. But actually, the opposite is true. Our military power creates resentment and enemies. Our soft power does the opposite. You know, America has a great story to tell. You know, for all of our sins, we're greatly admired in the world for what we've achieved. But we're not telling that story. The only face of America that many people in the world see is drone strikes and secret prisons and Guantanamo and torture and rendition. This is terrible because that's really not all of who we are. But we're not telling our story because we've given up on this idea that uh, projecting power any other way but militarily um, is foolish. So we're still caught up in this debate. I think there's something in the American soul that's martial, that that wants to use power. Americans don't like to understand things. We like to do things. So we're impatient, and uh, impatience often leads to trouble in a delicate world like the one in which we live. Now, we only have a few minutes left, and in in terms of what you've heard so far, the inaugural address and you know, the statements of Trump. How, do, how does he fit in this paradigm? And are you concerned about the direction uh, President Trump may be taking? I am concerned because I don't think he comes into office with any general pers- view or, or any general approach to the world. For example, he wants to uh, have a new beginning in our relationship with Russia, which I think is fine. So let's get rid of all of our prejudices and all the rhetoric about Russia and look calmly and clearly at whether Russia really threatens us or not. So if he's going to do that, why not use the same approach to other countries? Why not start fresh and make assessments of our relations with Iran, with Cuba, with Israel, with Pakistan, with Saudi Arabia? So his realism with Russia seems to be a one-off. He he doesn't seem to be uh, acting in accordance to a general plan. And uh, my other concern about his worldview Uh, is that it's not oriented towards uh, cooperation. In the modern world, you can't do much alone. I think I'm all for changing radically many of the foundations of American foreign policy, but you have to stop before you do that and imagine what all the ramifications are going to be. You You never want to take a step in the world without knowing how someone else is going to react and then planning out how you're going to react to their reaction. You can't change foreign policy dramatically just by a tweet and expect that uh, you're not going to cause havoc in the world. So changing direction of American foreign policy, yes. Doing it overnight without clearly thinking through where we're going uh, is very disconcerting to me, and I have a feeling that's where Trump is taking us. So I think we're, we're still at, an, at a point where we don't know in which direction we're going with Trump and uh, I, I don't like being at a point in a presidency like this and not knowing something fundamental like that. 
So do you, there'll be a, a wing in the, the Trump library, the, the 3 a.m. tweet wing? <laughs> I fear that. I wonder what's going to happen if he wakes up and the, they wake him up in the middle of the night and say, China just fired at one of our naval ships or Iran just captured six sailors in the Persian Gulf. Uh, I hope he's going to say, all right, let's get some sleep and get some more information and talk about this in the morning. But uh, his background suggests he might respond very differently, and that's uh, quite alarming. So um, you're you're on a book tour now, and uh, do you have any um, stops you want to highlight in the few minutes, in the little bit of time we have left? Well, I am going to be going out to uh, Washington. I'm going to be in California. I'm going to be out in Los Angeles and San Francisco in the middle of uh, February, and um, I'm going to be doing a lot of television and radio appearances. Not all of them will be as interesting as this one. But I'm going to continue uh, uh, explaining the roots of our debate over uh, interventionism. And I want to finish with this quote that tells you where I got the title of my book. So one of my discoveries in writing this book was the figure of Carl Schurz, who I had never heard of. He was a great uh, German immigrant to the United States. He was a Civil War general. He was a U.S. senator. He was a secretary of the interior. Uh, and also a, an outspoken anti-imperialist and a leader of the anti-imperialist league. So my book is called The True Flag. Here, here's the line from Carl Schurz that it comes from. And I think this line is so relevant today as much as it was more than 100 years ago when he said it. Let us raise high the flag of our country, not as an emblem of reckless adventure and greedy conquest, of betrayed professions and broken pledges, of criminal aggressions, an arbitrary rule over subject populations. But the old, the true flag, the flag of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, the flag of the government of, for, and by the people, the flag of national faith held sacred and of national honor unsullied, the flag of human rights and of good example to all nations, the flag of true civilization, peace, and goodwill to all men. That's the true flag that I'm hoping to raise, and and I hope the book contributes to raising it. Well, I certainly think, Stephen, I want to thank you. Um, It's been great talking with you on this, and as with all your other books, I encourage you, we have show notes on our blog, cyberlawradio.wordpress, and it has some of his other books, and they're just, he's really done a great job of highlighting the the consequences of American intervention, and uh, although separate book is your thousand hills on Rwanda's recovery from genocide is a different kind of direction, but it's also a very worthy read. So Stephen, thank you. I look forward to seeing you when you're in Los Angeles and I appreciate you joining us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, um, we'll have some news updates and um, we'll send you on your way. Thank you. And we're right back. You're listening to Cyberlaw Radio only on cranberryradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you have cold, hard cash burning a hole in your pocket? Let Cranberry Radio lighten your load. Just hand us that burdensome dinero, and we'll get you set up with your very own radio show. We produce, edit, and amplify the show. All you have to do is show up. It's time for you to make an impact. We're glad to help. Just hand over the cash. Space is limited. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? 
Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Cranberry Radio, online anytime at cranberry.fm. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Cranberry, Cranberry Radio. We're everywhere. Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. The book is The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. Um, we tried to have him earlier last year during the Miami Book Fair, but I'm glad he was able to join us now. And again, look at the show notes um, on Cranberry, excuse me, at um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and we have details on the book, even some background on that whole period um, with the, you know, our engagement in the Philippines. Let, was a protracted engagement. It was a, a kind of a warm-up of Vietnam. There was a substantial casualties, and uh, and actually, I believe even the first concentration camps were used in um, the Philippines, where in order to address the guerrilla warfare, we had kept whole villages in in under under um, fenced in, and so it's um, it was a controversial period even still to this day. But we have some other things we want to cover, and uh, one is we've had a number of shows talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, also known as TPP, and um, it's been quite controversial. Uh, we had people on pro to talk about the benefits of it and people on against who you know, thought it, this treaty went too far. Um, one thing that's interesting in tying this to what Stephen said was one, of the, one thing we didn't really stress was that one of the elements of why the U.S. needs to intervene abroad, was that we are a growing economy and we need access to foreign markets and getting access to Asia was a big part of Henry Cabot Lodge's argument for why uh, 
the Treaty of Paris and have this role in you know basically across the globe. Well, um, you know, there's a question: How does that play in vis-a-vis the Trump administration's view of TPP? Are are we no longer viewing world trade as a way to um, as an important element? Are we becoming more insular? Are we viewing more uh, uh, our own domestic economy? Um, because you know, there were a lot of people who thought that having TPP was an important strategic event, um, not only to expand trade in the region, but also to um, one contain China. Because otherwise, after without TPP, China was going to work out a, a free trade deal with the re- people in the region, but also to establish norms for China. You know, if all the other countries in the region are adhering to these norms, which also included certain rights protecting workers, um, maybe that's a benchmark for China to also achieve. So it's, that's an interesting development in light of actually um, what Stephen Kinzer said. Um, so we'll probably have more discussion about TPP um, down the road. There are a number of other issues. And also I wanted to flag uh, on uh, Internet Law Center's blog, Cyber Report, which is the ILC Cyber Report, um, dot wordpress.com. And um, we have um, Ashley Judd, who is one of Judd's sisters and a, a well-known actress. Um, she recently gave a TED Talk at TED Women in October, but the, the video was just posted um, just two week, a week ago, and it has gone viral where she talks about um, basically the assault on women and uh, it's a it's interesting and she doesn't have a lot um, in terms of what can or should be done um, but it's it's an interesting perspective and I encourage you to check it out it's on our blog at cyber report also um, with that we have a trailer for a new film that is a documentary that'll be coming out in 2007 called netizens and the filmmaker there who did the film bully is going to, has, is talking to victims of online harassment, especially women, to kind of uh, give flesh out what you know talks about in 12 minutes. This will be a documentary, and I just got funding through Kickstarter, so um, keep your eye on that. Um, definitely an interesting week in Washington, and uh, uh, you don't need to highlight this is how strange it has been, you know, particularly with Sean Spicer, you know, barking at the press and telling them what they should report. Period. Um, and uh, it, it just does not bode well. But um, hopefully, you know, we wish the Trump administration well. But uh, to wait and see. And um, there is no such thing as alternative facts. Alternative facts are um, not the truth. They're just something you made up. So, um, but one thing I can't make up is that we need to sign off shortly. So, I want to thank you all for listening in to Stephen Kinzer talk about the true flag. We'll be back next week. For another edition of Cyberlawn Business Report, this is Bennett Kelly. Check us out at the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. Check us out. Cyberlaw Radio is available on Twitter. Uh, Our Twitter account is Cyberlaw Radio. And um, so I hope to see you next week. This is Bennett Kelly. Thanks to Mayor Brown Platt for hosting us here in downtown Los Angeles. This is Bennett Kelly. Um, See you next week. We'll broadcast live from Santa Monica. Until then, have a great week. Look at the task of ranking your... 
The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.